The first thing that Eponidas Washington McIntosh knew was that he had been awakened by a giant pushing sensation and was flying through the cool night air. Then, suddenly, violently, he was plunged into the icy, churning waters of the Mississippi River. Gasping for breath, shaking from the frigid shock, McIntosh splashed about desperately before latching on to a cluster of boards floating alongside him. Having found a temporary respite from his bizarre plight, McIntosh now had time to look around, dark as the night was, to consider his circumstances. The steamboat that McIntosh had been sleeping on top of just moments before was about 50 feet away, though the distance was increasing as he began floating downriver. The boat, the Sultana, was swarming with activity and looked much differently than when he had gone to sleep. He could hear the sounds of men, and perhaps a few women and children, shouting in unrestrained panic, crowding onto the bow and stern of the boat, throwing debris into the water, and many leaping into the current to join him. He might also have noticed that the upper middle portion of the boat, including the pilot house, was missing, replaced by a yawning pit that reached into the heart of the vessel. The smokestacks had tumbled and twisted over the front of the craft, and he might have heard the groans of wounded and dying men. Soon, he would have also noticed men just like himself splashing about in the water, most of whom could not swim. Some cried for their mothers, some cursed President Lincoln, and yet others clutched desperately to their comrades who could swim, dragging both down into a gurgling mess. McIntosh had followed a strange path to his current situation. The former house painter from Illinois had fought in the war for years before being wounded and captured. He'd spent half a year as a prisoner in Andersonville, where the 175-pound soldier had withered into a 65-pound skeleton riddled with scurvy. Finally, he had been sent home with his fellow prisoners aboard a painfully bumpy train and then aboard a steamboat. He'd actually been left behind by the first boat in Memphis, but he had been lucky enough to stow away with another load of prisoners on the next boat, the Sultana. It had been jam-packed, but his kindly shipmates had made room for the withered Macintosh on the open-air hurricane deck. And now this. In the short term, the cold, sandy water seemed to soothe his swollen ankles and the blisters covering his feet. But Macintosh was unsure where he would end up. All he could do was hold on, avoid the hands of drowning men, and hope for the best. Though he did not yet know it, Macintosh would be one of the fortunate survivors of the worst maritime disaster in American history. You're listening to The Ingle Nook, a podcast about some of history's greatest stories. As always, I'm your host, Logan East. Today we take up the story of the worst maritime disaster in American history that almost no one has heard about. The Sultana disaster was the last tragedy in the long procession of death and destruction that marked the American Civil War. While most of those who perished during the Civil War did so from disease, injury, combat, or murder, the nearly 1,200 lives that were lost on the morning of April 27, 1865, were taken as the result of greed, corruption, and gross negligence. The loss was all the more acute as it befell soldiers and families cheered by the conclusion of the war 
and eager to be reunited after years of separation and hardship. Though the event is often overshadowed by other events in the April of 1865, such as Lee's surrender and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, or more famous maritime disasters like the sinking of the Titanic, it is a story that you are unlikely ever to forget. Finally, if you enjoy this episode, please be sure to like, favorite, subscribe, or leave a review. It helps out more than you know. For anyone who has spent much time alongside the southern reaches of the Mississippi River, the paddle steamboat is a ubiquitous symbol of what the river used to be, a great highway for passengers and cargo that ran through America's heartland. They summon that strange nostalgia for a time never experienced, and modern diesel-powered replicas offer amusement for children and tourists, as well as some casino patrons. They conjure up memories of tunes like Dixie or O oh Susanna, or the works of Mark Twain, who earned his pen name aboard a Missouri steamboat. As filled with whimsy as they can be today, paddle steamboats were a way of life and business on the Mississippi for nearly the entire 19th century. The Mississippi is the largest river in North America, and is fed by a vast network of tributaries that span from the Appalachian Mountains to the Rockies. Before the rise of railroads, the Mississippi was the primary artery of trade and travel for the middle of the United States and is still important for cargo transportation today. From the late 1700s into the first few decades of the 19th century, farmers east of the Appalachians would ship their harvests on rafts downriver to ports like Natchez or New Orleans to be sold. Going back upriver, however, could be extremely difficult given the river's current, and most farmers would simply sell their rafts for scrap and make their way home overland on foot along routes such as the Natchez Trace. River commerce changed forever, however, with Robert Fulton's development of the first commercially viable paddle steamboat on the Hudson River in 1807. In the coming decades, steamboats were improved dramatically and came to dominate commerce on America's internal waterways. The iconic paddle steamers of America's western waters, as they were then called, were boats, not ships. They had flat bottoms and shallow drafts that made them ideal for navigating the entire Mississippi watershed, and they could be tied up easily to wharves or even run aground in a pinch. The earlier versions typically were side wheelers, with one large paddle wheel on either side of the boat, and were usually outfitted with three decks an open main deck just above the water line for cargo, boilers and engines, and space for deckhands, a second deck above it that had enclosed staterooms for paying passengers, and a saloon along with an open-air portion with the main staircase, and the upper hurricane deck that was effectively the open roof of the vessel, but that could be made ready for passengers if necessary. Atop this was a small block of rooms for senior crew members called a Texas cabin, 
and atop that was the pilot house, with the wheel and an excellent view of the ship from all angles. Most impressively of all, however, were the two black smokestacks that towered high above the boat. While the height of the stacks was intended to keep stray sparks away from the entirely wooden body of the boat, they also served to announce the craft's presence from afar. By the middle of the 19th century, these elegant contraptions were the main form of transportation up and down the river system, and could be seen chugging, ringing, and whistling from New Orleans to the far reaches of the Missouri River, or as far up the Ohio River as Wheeling, today part of West Virginia. The steamboat, however, was not without its dangers. Fires occurred with some frequency and, unless extinguished immediately, could send the whole boat up in flames in minutes. In such an event, the standard protocol was to quickly run the boat aground on the bank and let the passengers off. More catastrophic, and increasingly feared in the 1850s and 60s, was the possibility of a boiler explosion. Boilers of the day contained an enormous amount of energy, with pressure inside regularly reaching 150 pounds per square inch. Pressure ensured that most of the water in the boiler remained in liquid form while steam escaped to power the engines through a tube. If there should be a weakness in the boiler, however, and the shell should fail, then all of the superheated water would vaporize at once. This instantaneous expansion would create an explosion with enough force to theoretically launch a boiler two miles, destroying all in its path. Furthermore, an explosion would disable the boat and expose the firebox, resulting in a fatal conflagration. Such accidents had become more common with the development of tubular boilers in the 1860s. Boilers that heated water by the use of many small tubes that channeled heated air through the boilers as opposed to just a few large flues and older versions. The increased surface area for heating could generate more pressure, but tubular boilers were also much harder to maintain and the iron available at the time was brittle and prone to weakness if heated without enough water in the boilers. Silty water from the river was used in the boilers, and its sediment would leave deposits that, if not cleaned properly, could cause portions of the boiler to overheat and burn, weakening the shell's strength. The many tubes only made this process more difficult. Accidents became a semi-regular occurrence, with one 1838 explosion killing 160 people. By the early 1850s, hundreds of people had died in steamboat accidents. The average steamboat operated for four or five years before succumbing to some fatal incident. Though we often think of the 19th century as a time of minimal safety guidelines and regulations, attempts were made to regulate steamboat operating conditions. Congress passed several steamboat acts, with the most important coming in 1852 to set up a system of licensing and inspection requirements to ensure competent and safe operation. Still, the new tubular boilers were unpredictable, and no amount of regulation could make up for reckless captains. Still, steamboats by the 1850s were equipped with life belts and firefighting equipment, and steamboat usage only increased by the year 1860. The coming of the Civil War in 1861 completely disrupted steamboat traffic on the Mississippi, at least temporarily. Boats were frequently commandeered by the militaries of both the Union and Confederacy, 
But the Union's capture of New Orleans in 1862 and taking of Vicksburg in 1863, the key port in the state of Mississippi, largely restored commerce under Union control and supervision. Boats were given contracts to transport soldiers and war supplies up and down the river, while others took to smuggling goods for the Confederacy. By early 1865, business was improving, especially if you were a captain with the Merchants and People's line of steamboats that had special contract rights with the Union Army. The steamboat Sultana, or I should say Sultanas, illustrates these conditions. The Sultana of our story was actually the fifth steamboat on the river to bear the name. The first two Sultanas were both speedy and successful ships that set records on the river and were retired when they fell out of date with technological improvements and commercial demands. In 1847, a new Sultana was built and spanned an impressive 306 feet she was intended for a large amount of cargo and set weight records before catching fire while docked in 1851. She burnt to the waterline with the loss of three lives. The fourth Sultana was built the same year as the last burnt, but was also lost in a fire on the river in 1857. The fifth Sultana, the Sultana of our story, was built during the war in early 1863 in anticipation of the resumption of the New Orleans cotton trade. She was 260 feet long, equipped with a pair of side wheels and a reinforced hull. The side wheel houses were emblazoned with the name Sultana in bold print, and she was considered a large, handsome, and speedy vessel. She sported four 18-foot tubular boilers, fancy staterooms, as well as life belts and fire buckets. These buckets were painted red and rested on hooks around the boat. They contained either water or sand and had round bottoms so that they would not be used for other purposes, at least in theory. There were also water barrels just in case of a fire. She had a small wooden boat at the stern for sounding depths, known as a yawl, and a metal lifeboat on the rear hurricane deck. The cutting-edge craft did regular work for the Union Army in her first year of service, taking fire from Confederates on several occasions. In early 1864, the Sultana was bought by a group of investors from St. Louis, Missouri, one of whom would serve as captain, James Cass Mason. Captain Mason was a clean-shaven, confident man in his early 30s with bright eyes. He had spent his whole life on the water. Mason had begun as a simple clerk and worked his way up the ranks, finally becoming an owner-captain. He also had a reckless streak and got his previous boat, which was named after his wife, confiscated for smuggling clothing for the rebels. It subsequently sank, a total financial loss. Notwithstanding, Captain Mason took well to his new boat, the Sultana, and set a speed record for the fastest trip between New Orleans and St. Louis, earning the set of elk horns that went to the fastest boat on the river, which were suspended between the two smokestacks. In this wartime environment, however, private business was slow, and the best money to be had was in government transportation work, where a boat received a fixed rate for each enlisted man and officer it transported per fixed distance. Mason, the young businessman and brash captain, intended to get his fair share of the business. Late 1864 and early 1865 were very disappointing for Captain Mason and the Sultana, 
business continued to be slow, and winter brought heavy ice to the upper reaches of the river. Determined to reach St. Louis anyway, Mason ran his boat through dense ice that tore up the paddle wheels and resulted in long, costly repairs. In the spring of 65, he had gotten into a race with the larger vessel, the Olive Branch, heading out of New Orleans. Steamboat races were somewhat common among the less cautious captains and would go on for days at a time. The contest ended prematurely, however, when the government demanded use of the Olive Branch and when the Sultana encountered boiler problems at Vicksburg. The Sultana's new tubular boilers demanded constant, tedious maintenance. A deckhand or engineer would have to climb inside the emptied boiler to chip and scrape sediment deposits off of the many inner tubes. It appears that this work was sometimes done imperfectly or not often enough on the Sultana, resulting in boiler leaks and costly repairs. Thus, when April 1865 rolled around, Captain Mason was desperate for money. There were two competing steamboat lines on the Mississippi at the time. The Atlantic and Mississippi Steamship Company, which shipped freight down the Mississippi and out to sea from New Orleans, and the Merchants and Peoples Line, which shipped only on the Mississippi River system. Seeking improved business, Mason had signed the Sultana on to the latter, which proved fortunate. The Merchants and Peoples Line received the contract from the Union Army for exclusive transportation of troops on the river. With the war nearing its end, many troops would be heading home back up the river. On the night of April 14th, Good Friday, the Sultana was docked at Cairo, Illinois, a port town of the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers, and a major hub of wartime transportation. Simultaneously, President Lincoln was visiting Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. to relax now that General Robert E. Lee had finally surrendered and that the war was winding down. Infamously, John Wilkes Booth, carrying out his part in a plot to assassinate the leadership of the U.S. government, shot Lincoln in the back of the head. Lincoln succumbed to the grievous wound the next morning, April 15th. As news reached Cairo by telegraph that morning, the world stood still for many. People wept, shouted, and paused in disbelief. But as the nation prepared to enter mourning, Captain Mason saw an opportunity. Telegraph service had been disconnected to the entire South by General Grant's orders, which meant that no one south of Kentucky would hear of the news until told in person. Mason had the crew drape the Sultana in black bunting, grabbed two stacks of the latest newspaper, and shoved off early to be the first to carry news of the tragedy into the South, and hopefully earn notoriety for himself and his boat. The ploy had the desired effect. As the Sultana made its speedy progress down the river, crowds gathered to learn the purpose of the blackened vessel. As tears filled many eyes, they were at least thankful to the gracious captain who gave away newspapers for free, thus landing himself and his boat in newspaper articles about the assassination all the way down to New Orleans. When the Sultana pulled up to Vicksburg on April 17th, however, she was greeted by more than just anxious news seekers. The ship's agent in town, Miles Sells, and the Union's chief quartermaster for the city, Captain Reuben B. Hatch, stepped aboard. After learning of Lincoln's sad fate, Hatch pulled Mason aside to speak privately. Hatch and Mason likely knew each other from when Hatch had served in the quartermaster's office in St. Louis 
and Arkansas the last few years, and the men were in similar financial positions. Mason was hurting for cash given poor business and expensive repairs. Hatch, who came from a wealthy Illinois family, was hurting for other reasons. Early in the war, while serving as quartermaster in Cairo, Hatch had been caught skimming large sums of money by paying contractors one price for government supplies and billing the government a higher amount, taking the difference for himself. He was only saved from court-martial and dismissal by the personal intervention of his brother, a major player in Illinois politics, with President Lincoln, who unfortunately vouched for Hatch. A warehouse owned by Hatch had also burnt down in 1863, and his finances were a mess. He did not yet know it, but a quartermaster review board had already found him to be grossly incompetent and was preparing to fire him. Fitting with his general picture, Hatch likely informed Mason that the Confederacy was releasing all of their prisoners of war who were to be shipped back north through Vicksburg. Hatch, leaning into his old tricks, most likely promised Mason a large sum of these prisoners for a share in the profits. In the meantime, Mason would continue on to New Orleans for regular business, but his focus was set entirely on his return upriver and the hefty payday he was sure to make. Let us now leave Mason and Hatch to their scheming for a moment as we return our attention to Private Ephenidas McIntosh, his comrades, and how they ended up in the water on the morning of April 27th. Taking prisoners was a regular part of warfare in the 19th century. Prisoners were theoretically to be treated with respect and fed and clothed similar to regular soldiers. Nearly every encounter between hostile forces in the Civil War resulted in at least a handful of captives who surrendered when their unit was surrounded or their fortifications overrun. Laying down your arms and waving your hands in the air when defeat was certain and escape unlikely was perfectly honorable. But for the first two years of the war, being a prisoner of war was a short-term status. The Union and Confederacy maintained a constant flow of prisoner exchanges where captured soldiers were handed back on a one-for-one basis for friendly soldiers. This pattern was disrupted at the start of 1863 with Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. The proclamation declared slaves within currently rebelling territory to be free under U.S. law, thus ending the awkward status of contraband for slaves who escaped the Confederacy and effectively making the war as much about ending slavery as preserving the Union. Alongside this change came the creation of of the United States Colored Troops, or USCT, units composed entirely of black soldiers, though led by white officers. Many USCT soldiers were escaped slaves, and even those who had not been were still considered property by the Confederate government. The Confederacy refused to exchange white soldiers for black, and made it a policy to force any captured black soldiers into slavery. In some instances, black soldiers and their white officers were simply killed by unrestrained rebel soldiers, as at Fort Pillow. In response, the Union temporarily suspended all prisoner exchanges with the Confederacy until a solution could be reached. Any hope of resumption ended when Ulysses S. Grant became the chief commander of Union forces. He permanently suspended prisoner transfers as a war measure. Grant understood that the Union's chief advantage was numbers, and that while the Union could afford for thousands of men to be held in prison, the Confederacy could not. 
If the Union continued to give back Confederate soldiers, he reasoned, then he would have to kill every white man in the South for the war to end. Thus, the Union and Confederacy were forced to establish long-term prison camps. Conditions in Confederate prison camps were infamous. By 1863, the Confederacy was struggling to feed and clothe its own soldiers in the field. There were bread riots in the capital at Richmond. It hardly had the resources to accommodate tens of thousands of captive soldiers. While small temporary prisons had been established in old warehouses or temporary stockades, the Confederate government constructed a large open-air facility outside of Andersonville, Georgia, officially called Camp Sumter. Soon, the Andersonville prison was expanded to house an estimated 30,000 prisoners, though it was pushed well beyond this limit. The prison amounted to a series of wooden palisades that enclosed about 25 acres of land, totally exposed except for guard towers along the perimeter. There was a muddy creek that ran through the center of the prison that had to be used as a latrine, wash basin, and water source for tens of thousands of malnourished men. About 15 feet inside the main palisade was a small fence called the dead line. If prisoners touched across this line, they were to be shot on the spot. While prisoners were officially supposed to receive a pound of beef a day, this was never the case in reality. The usual fare was uncooked corn flour with no means of preparation. When there was meat, prisoners were often forced to scrounge from all parts of the animal, including the head. No new clothing was issued to the prisoners, resulting in many being clothed only in rags. Clothing was usually taken from the corpses of the deceased, though this was uncommon for regular Confederate soldiers too. Prisoners suffered extreme malnutrition, with many withering down to bony shells of their former selves, like Private McIntosh, who, in addition to weighing only 65 pounds, was also effectively naked. Scurvy, typhoid fever, and dysentery were widespread. Over 25% of all prisoners who arrived at Andersonville perished, making life on the battlefield far safer. In fact, more people died in Andersonville than actually died in the Battle of Gettysburg on both sides. The superintendent of the prison, Henry Wurz, was the only man after the war to be tried, convicted, and executed for war crimes, though many believe he was offered up to appease public opinion for conditions somewhat outside of his control, though he did not really stress himself about making things better. When Union officials learned of conditions in Confederate camps, they worsened conditions in northern prisons to exact some form of vengeance. Many prisoners who would end up on the Sultana were also kept at the much smaller Cahaba prison in Alabama along the Alabama River. Hundreds of men were jammed into an incomplete cotton warehouse with only a partial roof. As at Andersonville, a small creek ran through the prison to be used for all purposes and the perimeter of the outer stockade included a deadline. While there were wooden bunks for some prisoners, most were forced to sleep on the ground. During heavy rains, the entire prison flooded, and men were forced to stand in waist-high water for days, unable to sleep. The commander at Cahaba, Colonel H.A.M. Henderson, often known as Ham Henderson, was far more conscientious than was Wurz at Andersonville, and moved a portion of the prisoners to provide some relief. He also attempted to improve their general conditions, but supplies were simply unavailable. Later on, uh, toward the end, he actually sends uh, 
to Union commanders for clothing from Union stores to give to Union prisoners because he simply didn't have any clothing to give the prisoners. Thus, when soldiers at Andersonville and Cahaba were notified in early April that they would soon be paroled and sent to Mississippi for transfer home, many wept for joy. With the Confederacy collapsing, all prisoners were to be transferred without exchange, lest they simply be left to starve in their stockades. Thousands of prisoners from Andersonville and Cahaba were to be shipped by rail past Jackson, Mississippi, then walked overland to Camp Fisk, just a few miles outside of Vicksburg. At Camp Fisk, they would be cared for by Union soldiers while awaiting their formal release. Many men were too ill for travel, and many skeletal men died along the way. McIntosh was lucky. Some had their comrades conceal them in the train boxcars so that they would not be held back at hospital, so eager were they to return home. When the men finally saw the flag they had not seen for a year, they were once again reduced to tears. It was the prettiest thing my eyes ever beheld, recalled one private Eldridge. At first, the men were given stale, wormy hardtack crackers to eat, and many complained of the cruel quartermaster who sent them. That cheapskate, of course, was Captain Reuben Hatch. Upon showing the foul food to the commanding general, their rations were improved. The Christian Sanitary Commission, devoted to improving conditions experienced by soldiers, delivered all sorts of creature comforts. Utensils, combs, religious literature, potatoes, onions, sauerkraut, and pens and paper to write letters home. Now, all that was necessary was for their names to be processed and to be sent up the river, at least for those not stuck in hospital. With the arrival of the paroled prisoners in mid-late April, all of Vicksburg was abuzz with preparation and with hungry steamboat agents. The government was paying roughly $9 per officer and $3.25 per enlisted man transported up the river, and, with literally thousands of parolees to be shipped, business-starved boatmen were eager to snap up a share of the trade. The general challenge for the Army officers in occupied Vicksburg was to process all of the parolees and to secure them transportation to muster camps in the north. The commanding general of the Department of Mississippi, Napoleon J.T. Dana, gave the task of processing the parolees to Captain George Williams. But, since Williams was temporarily away on business, the job then fell to Captain Frederick Speed, who promptly began assembling the rolls of names by checking them against the jumbled Confederate record books. The quartermaster's office would handle boat selection and getting the men aboard, Seeing as the government had a contract with the People's Line, this process should have been straightforward. But there were complications. The chief quartermaster was Captain Hatch, who took little interest in most day-to-day operations. Assistant quartermaster for transportation was Captain William Kearns, a young and sincere man who signed off on transportation passes but was subordinate to the other captains in the chain of command. Steamboat agents had been approaching numerous clerks and officers with offers of bribes to get shares of the parolee load, especially for boats not part of the contracted line. Most of the bribes were turned down, but rumor of them raised suspicion among the Vicksburg officers and led to confusion and distrust. Ironically, perhaps the man most likely to accept such a bribe, Captain Hatch, was the one man who managed to avoid immediate suspicion. By April 22nd, 
Captain Speed had processed the first load of parolees, which were organized by groups of their state of origin. A contract boat, the Henry Ames, was selected and filled. General Dana had originally stipulated that only 1,000 men should be shipped per boat, which was a large sum in itself for such vessels, but Speed had sent 1,315. Dana saw the men before their departure, implicitly approving of the larger number. As a result, the officers in charge saw the original number as a polite recommendation and instead focused on processing the parolees as quickly as possible. That evening, a non-contract boat, the Olive Branch, arrived, and its captain, Ben Tabor, came ashore to talk with Hatch. Circumstances suggest that Hatch and Tabor reached a deal. Early the next morning, Captain Speed had several hundred parolees ready and sent a man to check if any more boats had arrived. Though the Olive Branch was waiting, Hatch simply lied and said that no boats were present. Then, a few hours later, he informed Speed that the Olive Branch had arrived the previous night. Speed was outraged, demanding to know why Hatch had not informed him earlier. Hatch said that he had only just been informed and that it was Captain Kearns' fault. Hatch furthermore suggested that Kearns might have accepted a bribe on behalf of another boat, an unfounded assertion that would place doubt on Kearns' character among the other officers. Which really just makes me chuckle. Hatch is just such a, such a dastardly man. Speed, incensed, determined that all available parolees would go on the olive branch immediately to foil the bribe. This was perfect for Hatch and Tabor. For the day, over 600 parolees were sent on the olive branch, which was as much as Speed could finish the rolls for. Later, Hatch would insist that by this decision, Captain Speed had taken full responsibility of the loading process. Captain Speed lodged a complaint against Kearns with General Dana, though Kearns attested that he had no knowledge of the olive branch's presence until a request was made for the transportation voucher and that he had no role in the selection of the past two boats. Dana apparently believed Kearns, but the episode put all of the officers on edge. That evening, Hatch went to see Speed about the remaining parolees, who were all from the states of Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia. Hatch expressed his hope that they would all be ready in two days, April 25th, When Speed demurred, saying that he'd have the rolls complete in four days for April 27th, Hatch reminded him that the Sultana would be coming up the river and that she was a contract boat entitled to a share of the parolees, especially if non-contract boats were trying to bribe their way in. Of course, we know that Hatch was just as happy to give men to non-contract boats as contract boats if he was getting a share of the profits. A few hours later, the Sultana made her way into port, and Captain Mason came ashore to claim his prize. The Sultana was having a problem with a leaky boiler that would need to be fixed, which would take at least until the next afternoon, though he did not share this information with the officers in Vicksburg. The boilermaker conducting the repairs later remarked that the boilers were burnt and showed signs of use with insufficient water. He first approached Hatch, Mason first approached Hatch, who told him that since he had arrived so shortly after the non-contract olive branch, he did not believe Speed would be able to have many parolees processed. But, Hatch said, he would make sure trains were ready to transport whatever men were available to the waterfront. 
Mason then stormed off with his local agent, Miles Sells, to Army headquarters. Captain George Williams had returned from his errands and reached an agreement to work with Captain Speed to finish the parolee processing. He had also arrived just in time to be approached by an ornery Captain Mason. Mason insisted on receiving his share of the parolees and threatened to lodge a formal complaint to Washington since the Olive Branch, a non-contract boat, had received parolees that should have been his to transport. When Williams responded that Speed would likely only have a few hundred ready, Mason persisted and said that Captain Hatch would have trains ready to assist. Williams, simply desiring to get rid of the problem, suggested that a roll call of the soldiers could simply be made at the boat and the names checked against the Confederate books afterward so Mason could receive a full load of about 1,000 men. Mason, pleased with this solution, returned it to the Sultana. Williams collected speed and the two went to see Hatch. Hatch said that the trains would be ready and also suggested that Mason simply receive all of the remaining parolees, which Speed estimated at about 13 or 1400, which is about as much as the Henry Ames had received a few days earlier. A solution having been reached, the men separated for the night. The next day, the men at Camp Fisk were made ready for their final voyage under the leadership of the highest-ranking officer among them. Major William Fiddler of Kentucky. Speed and Williams would supervise the loading onto the trains. While the men were being prepared, two other steamboats pulled in, the non-contract Pauline Carroll and the contract Lady Gay. Both boats hoped to get a share of any spillover parolees available. Captain Kearns was concerned that there would be too many parolees for just the Sultana and asked Captain Hatch to intervene. Hatch deceptively claimed that it was no longer his responsibility and said he would check with Captain Speed. Speed, still believing there only to be about 1,400 men, telegraphed from Camp Fisk that the Sultana would be sufficient, and so the Lady Gay left port. But an error had been made. Speed and Williams only personally supervised the first and last of three train loads of parolees and left Camp Fisk early. The second load was much larger than they expected. And since the final names would only be checked at the waterfront, the total number would only be known when all of the men were aboard the Sultana. Captain Speed went to lunch and left Captain Williams to tally the names of the gangplank. Crucially, a soldier approached Williams and told him that Captain Speed had been bribed to put parolees on the non-contract Pauline Carroll. This was not true. In fact, that soldier himself had accepted a bribe and was attempting to shift suspicion, much as Hatch had done the previous day. But the misinformation angered Williams and determined him to load all of the parolees on the Sultana, come what may. While Williams would later discover that Speed was innocent, the damage was done. As no one officer was aware of the total of men, they simply kept piling on. The only man, other than the crowded parolees themselves, who raised any concern was Captain Kearns, who watched the loading occur. He appealed to Hatch, Speed, and Williams, as well as General Morgan Smith, to divide the prisoners onto the empty Pauline Carroll, but no one listened. Some, like Hatch, insisted it was outside his authority, which was absurd. Captain Speed deferred to Captain Williams, who, still believing that the Pauline Carroll was attempting to bribe her way towards some parolees, insisted they remain on the Sultana. 
Dr. Kimball, in charge of the military hospital, had originally placed 30 bedridden men on board near the warm boilers, but upon seeing how packed the boat was becoming, he removed them. Some of the parolees themselves, including Major Fiddler, attempted to have some of their number placed on the other boat, but someone made up the lie that there was smallpox on the Pauline Carroll. Like it or not, the men were stuck with the Sultana. The boat was extremely crowded. Men were jammed everywhere, on the bow, stern, against the boilers, in the cargo holds, under and on top of the stairs, and across the entirety of the hurricane deck. From the shore, the Sultana was one wriggling mass of humanity. The saloon was made into an officer's bunkhouse, while the only places devoid of parolees were the paid staterooms for civilian passengers. The wheelhouse that contained the ship's mascot, a caged seven-foot alligator, and the pilot house. Men were even huddled around the boilers. Most of them simply laid in tightly packed rows. Lacking any facilities, the men tore holes in the top of the paddle wheel houses to use as a latrine. And uh, while I think we've all heard the expression of poop hitting the fan, I don't know if we've ever heard of poop hitting the paddle wheel. As many of the parolees suffered from dysentery, they even used the fire buckets for human waste. Private Eldridge, who'd been so glad to see the flag in Camp Fisk, was happy that his friends found a spot up on top of the boat, just behind the smokestacks, right above the boilers. And what a spot it was. When Captain Williams performed his final tally, he must have been shocked. The estimates had been low. Together, they had loaded 1,966 parolees onto the Sultana a gargantuan figure for a boat only 260 feet long. The total number of passengers has been a long-standing matter of dispute, but the best estimate, provided by Gene Salaker, largely supports Williams's rough number. Combined with crew and paying passengers, each numbering about 80 people for a total of 160 non-parolee passengers, put the total number of people on board the Sultana at about 2,130 people. Of the passengers, only about 25 would have been women and children, either paid passengers or the wives of some of the deckhands. It is important to note that while the number of passengers was enormous, it was not so dangerous from a weight perspective. The boat could carry far more weight as she only carried a small cargo load of some mules, horses, and barrels of sugar. Rather, so many passengers on board made the ship top-heavy and prone to careening from side to side, as well as extremely dangerous should an emergency, such as a fire, emerge or cause the boat to sink. Most people in 19th century America could not swim. While some of the crew, like First Clerk William Gambrell, were concerned at the roof caving in, Captain Mason seemed content and pleased with his bumper crop. Gambrel would claim to another passenger that the boat would set a record for the most people carried on one boat up the Mississippi. Though less than a third of the size of the Titanic that would sail half a century later, she carried just 100 fewer passengers. The men were packed like sardines, their rations and accommodations were lackluster, and it would be a journey of several days. But the war was over, and as the Sultana rang her bell and shoved off into the churning waters of the Mississippi, they were finally headed home. As the Sultana steamed up the river, the challenges of having so many people on board became readily apparent. 
If the soldiers gathered toward one side, stepping over each other, to see a passing boat or town, the ship would list dangerously to that side. While on the one hand that could entail the risk of tipping in a strong current, the greater danger had to do with the boilers. If the boat listed too far to one side, water would no longer cover some of the upper tubes within the boiler, especially if they were operated with insufficient water. This could permit them to become red-hot. When the boat tilted back toward center, the water could hit the red-hot tube and dramatically increase the pressure in the boiler, possibly causing an explosion or boiler failure. Adding to these surreal circumstances was the flooded state of the Mississippi. Today, the Mississippi River is fenced in by levees for more or less her entire length. During the Civil War, levees only protected the most developed and important areas. In such high flood seasons, like the spring of 1865, the river's waters flooded far over her banks, in some places stretching for miles. Islands and trees that were landmarks for most of the year were now fully submerged, as were several of the smaller port towns along the way. And while the air temperatures were comfortable, the water had come from the snowmelt far upstream and was unusually cold. Nevertheless, the Sultana made her way as Captain Mason and the soldiers' officers called for the men to stay in their places. The first stop along the way was at the flooded town of Helena, Arkansas, where water stood several feet deep in the streets. As supplies were loaded on, one local photographer snapped the only known photograph of the Sultana as she appeared loaded in such a condition. Taken from the back left, the photo shows soldiers crowding all over to appear in the picture. The boat almost looks like a porcupine whose spines have been replaced by human torsos. Perhaps standing in the pilot house door is Captain Mason, while on the second deck can be seen a few civilian passengers on the promenade that was off-limits to the soldiers. One trail of smoke lists lazily out of the frame. It is a happy picture. Then, a few moments later, the Sultana chugged back into the current at her usual speed of about 10 miles per hour, headed up for the next town. On the evening of April 26th, the Sultana pulled up to Memphis, Tennessee the last major stop on her voyage before her destination of Cairo, Illinois. She was calling in for only a few hours to refuel on coal and wood, as well as to drop off her cargo of sugar. Each of the sugar barrels, or hogsheads, weighed about 1,200 pounds, for a total weight of 135 tons. While this exchange meant money in Captain Mason's pocket, it also meant that the ship now lacked what little ballast it had, making it even more top-heavy. While unloading the sugar, the Sultana also exchanged some passengers. Among the paying passengers getting off were about a dozen members of the Chicago Opera Troupe, while one of the men getting on was the new senator-elect from Arkansas, William Snow, who would prove a very observant passenger. Though it was forbidden, a few hundred of the soldiers also snuck off, some pretending to help unload cargo. Memphis was the largest town any of them had seen for at least a year, and for many much longer. Many went in search of a good meal, a strong drink, to find female company, and at least some went to the theater. While most of them made it back in time, a few were upset to find that they had missed the boat. Private George Downing was left behind, but managed to reboard just upstream where the Sultana was taking on extra coal, 
It was also at Memphis that our friend, Private Eponidas McIntosh, stowed away, having been left behind by one of the earlier transports. Around midnight, the Sultana was back heading up the river in the dark of night. First engineer Nathan Wintringer left the boilers to his replacement with confidence. The repairs seemed to be working fine, and pressure was steady. The second engineer was Samuel Clements, who coincidentally shared a name with the more famous boatman, Mark Twain, whose real name was Samuel Langhorn Clements. At the same time, Captain Mason handed command over to first mate William Robury and retired to his room at the front of the Texas cabin for the night. To reach it, he had to struggle along railings to get past the crowd of recumbent soldiers, giving the men a laugh. With the closing of his cabin door, Mason, as well as the host of passengers, settled in for a calm, peaceful night. Up top, in the pilot house, were pilot George Caden at the helm and first mate William Robury, both surveying the darkened tide. Caden had to navigate the boat up a flooded river. While the current was stronger and more difficult, most of the pesky sandbars and islands that usually stood in the way were helpfully submerged. On the way up, they had even been able to cut across many flooded corners. Along the flooded banks and drowned midstream islands, only the tops of trees testified to their presence. Cadence kept the Sultana to the Tennessee side of the river for several miles until he approached a major bend that went leftward. As he took the boat into the turn at around 2 a.m., he steered to cross the river to the Arkansas side to find slack water near the bank. This maneuver meant that the Sultana would temporarily encounter the full current on her starboard or rightward side, causing the boat to list to port until the crossing was complete. While almost no one on board recalled this process later, it was noted that the boat was traveling at her usual speed, meaning that the boilers would have been working at full tilt. Down near the boilers, Corporal Robert Elza, who was unable to sleep, listened to Engineer Clemens as he worked. Clemens complained that he would need to let water out of the boilers to generate enough steam to power against the current for the next maneuver. He opened the valve, releasing water into the river, and then banged on the water gauge. Damn it, said Clemens, that's not enough. At the same time, the Sultana had crossed the main current, and any tilt would have come back to center. Clemens opened the water release valve again, then banged on the water gauge. A dry steam whistle began whining. Warning of extreme pressure. The soldiers on the hurricane deck near the steam release pipes, smaller pipes a distance behind the smokestacks, were awoken to the odd whistling sound. While Clemens likely stood in shock at the realization that the water gauge had malfunctioned, Corporal Elza ran awake and warned his friends. The engineer just... In an instant, three of the Sultana's four boilers had exploded with a force and shock that is impossible to imagine. The explosion began at the top rear of the boilers and traveled directly upward in a cone that widened with distance from the boilers, The men directly surrounding the boilers were either horrifically scalded by the steam, blown away onto the deck or into the water, or blown to bits. Engineer Clemens would miraculously survive, only to die on shore a few hours later from full-body scalding. Scalding from the cloud of steam released by the boilers was one of the most horrific yet common injuries 
sustained by the passengers. On the second deck, the front portion of the saloon and attached staterooms were blown apart, leaving a gaping hole that separated the back of the saloon from the forward deck. It also ensured that the officers in the saloon, if not killed or maimed immediately, could not reach their men to issue orders and control the chaos. The explosion had widened considerably by the time it reached the hurricane deck, blasting away the entire width of the deck just ahead of the paddle wheels. All but the very front of the Texas cabin was destroyed in an instant, killing most of the Sultana's senior crew members. The pilot house was blown directly into the air, with Caden and Robury still inside. It then came crashing back down into the deep pit and crumpling on top of what remained of the boilers. Robury was thrown away from the ship and into the water, but Caden came down with the pilot house and, incredibly, was able to scramble out of the rubble to his feet. Hundreds of soldiers, especially those on the middle portion of the hurricane deck, were thrown tens if not hundreds of feet into the air and into the water. This was the case both for the emaciated Private McIntosh and Private Eldridge, who had been so pleased with this spot. Throwing them so far from the boat might have saved their lives. Before anyone had time to process what had happened, boards, glass, metal, men, bodies, and appendages rained back down on the boat and the surrounding water, shocking everyone and causing some passengers to panic. Private Charles King woke with a shock, exclaiming, Oh God! Oh Mother! I am lost! I'm gone! before leaping into the icy waters without grabbing any flotation device. As with so many others, Private King was never seen again. The explosion had caused devastating damage to the boat, though it had not harmed the reinforced hull. The Sultana would not sink if she did not burn, and though hundreds of men had just been killed or drowned by the immediate explosion, most might yet survive. The smokestacks twisted and tumbled down, with one landing on the front hurricane deck, crushing many. One ironically named man, Private William Crisp, was struck and pinned by a searing piece of boiler. It broke his shoulder and temporarily trapped him in a sweltering prison. I thought I should have been roasted alive then and there, he remembered. The paddle wheels, suspended by a cantilever chain that balanced their weight against each other, fell outward, with one hanging lazily off the side and the other splashing into the water. Some men in the water who had grabbed onto the paddles for support now found themselves trapped inside the wheelhouses, like an upside-down box in water. But the destruction of the boilers had exposed their fireboxes and searing coals below. Furthermore, the loss of structural integrity caused part of the saloon deck and the entire front portion of the hurricane deck burdened under hundreds of bodies, to collapse inward, creating giant, horrific ramps into the boiler pit. Many wounded men slid helplessly down these slopes to their doom. Men on the front second deck were crushed by the collapse, much as the now-deceased William Gambrell had feared. Some men were only saved by the sturdy stair railings toward the front of the deck. The net effect was that there was now a heap of dry kindling and bodies on top of the firebox, which began a small fire that promised to spread rapidly. Major Fiddler, Captain Mason, Engineer Wintringer, and Pilot Caden attempted to lead the effort to extinguish the fires, but the fire buckets were gone from their hooks and strewn on the hurricane deck as chamber pots. 
The water barrels were empty as soldiers had used up all the water. Within minutes, it became clear that the fire was unstoppable, as it grew into a towering inferno, consuming wood and bodies alike. Seeing that the boat was dead in the water, and set to burn in minutes, the next impulse was to leap into the water. The massive fire pit now divided the boat entirely in two, making it impossible for those at the bow to communicate with those at the stern. Since the paid staterooms were behind the fire, all women and children aboard were stuck toward the stern, that means the back of the boat, along with many confused soldiers. Toward the bow, the front of the boat, gathered mainly soldiers and what few officers the Sultana had left, including Captain Mason. Temporarily, the boat was pointed upwind, meaning that the wall of steam followed by the fire began sweeping toward the rear of the boat. Those at the front enjoyed momentary safety, while the flames swept aftward with alarming rapidity. Many of the deckhands, who were awake and aware of the ensuing dangers when the blast occurred, were the first to jettison. A handful of deckhands lowered the small wooden yawl at the rear of the boat before the soldiers had time to react. In a chilling instance, one of the deckhands' wives appeared at the railing, calling for him to come back for her. The deckhands made no reply, rowing away. As only a handful of women survived this disaster, we know that this woman definitely did not. Soldiers on the rear hurricane deck worked to launch the large metal lifeboat. They were forced to throw it from the top down into the crowded waters below. While it landed upside down, it was immediately swarmed by droves of terrified men who could not swim. As with so many other floating objects that night, it repeatedly rolled over under the weight, throwing men under. The process continued until the lifeboat had drowned most of its would-be passengers. When a panicked woman had leapt into the water in confusion, the gallant Major Fiddler jumped in to save her. Unfortunately, many terrified soldiers followed Fiddler in desperation and, unable to swim, dragged their leader and themselves down in a floundering mess. While there would be a good number of survivors among the men blown into the water and those who held onto the boat for a long time, most of those who rushed into the water in the early panic perished. In that throng, even strong swimmers were pulled down by panic-stricken neighbors. In an unimaginable disaster such as this, people's worst nature is often revealed. Fortunately, many passengers also rose to the occasion. Dozens of soldiers who had stowed away in the empty cargo holds were now trapped below by the closed hatches. As so many of their comrades passed them by in their mad dash to escape the flames, Private Ogilvy Hamblin, who had one arm amputated by Confederate doctors, struggled to pry the hatch open with his buddy, releasing the men like bees out of a hive, he recalled. Jenny Perry, one of the only two women to survive, fastened the life belt from her stateroom, and made for the water. She was able to work with a group of soldiers to cling to a door and float downriver. Teamwork saved them. In other instances, men who could not swim would try to climb atop floating objects, sinking them and everyone else who was holding on. Others released the mules and horses. A living animal was hardly any use, as they could not be controlled, as some men discovered, while a drowned mule would sink. If the mule was killed outside of the water, however, air stuck in its lungs would make it a solid life preserver. Private Daniel Luganbeel, 
remembered the ship's mascot and headed for its crate. He opened the box and then bayoneted the alligator before taking the container as his own surfboard. Luganbill claimed he had to kick dozens of men away as he powered downstream, rubbing his skin raw on the box edges. Daniel McLeod, who had already been wounded at Shiloh, was seated in the saloon when the blast occurred. He was blown forward into a pile of rubble and badly scalded. Horrifically, both of his legs were broken at the ankle with the bone sticking out. Exercising incredible presence of mind, he tied his suspenders around his ankles to staunch the bleeding. Captain James Walter Elliott remembered McLeod calling to him for aid, but Elliott told him he could not swim. McLeod asked that Elliott simply throw him into the river so that he would not burn to death. Elliot obliged and, likely fearing he was sending McLeod to a more merciful watery grave, tossed him overboard. McLeod, however, was a good swimmer and, against all odds, would survive. Elliot would also survive by sharing some floating wreckage with a few comrades, though many of them would be tossed off by eddies in the river's current. Anne Annis was traveling with her ill husband, retired Lieutenant Harvey Annis, and their young daughter, Belle. Anne was badly scalded by the steam, but Harvey fastened life belts to both of them, though not Bell, as the belt was too large. Harvey picked up Bell, and the trio made for the water, sliding down a rope. Anne was knocked by another passenger into the cargo hold before being stepped on by a mule. By the time she reached the water, Harvey and Bell were too far away. Harvey had put Bell on top of a floating door, which worked until they hit an eddy. Bell fell in, and Harvey dove in after her. Neither were seen again. Anne, however, was able to survive much as Jenny Perry did. No other women or children survived the disaster. Eventually, the current turned the Sultana in the water, reversing the course of the fire and driving all of the men on the bow in a mob toward the water. Men at the back were terrified of the licking flames, while men at the front were sent tumbling unprepared into the river. It was the men who were able to hold back the longest, allowing the drowning crowd to dissipate and secure a piece of wood who usually fared the best. Of the senior crew, first engineer Wintringer, like Captain Mason, had survived at the front of the Texas cabin and, after failing to fight the fire, made his way into the water. First mate Roberry was floating safely downriver while pilot Caden, also failing to extinguish the fire, leapt into the water and survived. Captain Mason seems to have felt responsible for the entire disaster. He was seen by many survivors helping to tear any objects off of the boat, shutters, doors, railings, and throw them into the water, helping every man he could. He chose to stick with the crowd at the bow until the end, looking deeply exhausted. No one saw him jump in, and his body was never recovered. Fortunately for the survivors, they were floating on one of the nation's busiest waterways. Over 2,000 people had been thrown into the river. Hundreds of them were already dead as the first rays of sunlight began to emerge. Many rural Arkansans and Tennesseans on the shore had heard the boiler explosion, which rang for miles, and seen the terrible fire on the river. Families on the Arkansas side said that the sky was so illuminated by the blaze when they stepped out of their cabins that it looked like daylight. The first steamboat to appear, coming from upriver, the Bostona, was shocked at the sight. 
The captain ordered all small boats into the water and began throwing all floating objects, mattresses, boxes, shutters, doors, etc., toward the people in the river. He took aboard over a hundred survivors before steaming downriver to Memphis to alert the city to send more help. Survivors still floating in the icy current felt abandoned, but it was the best thing the Bostona could do. Soon, as survivors' bodies and wreckage began floating by Memphis in the twilight, and as the Bostona appeared, all boats were launched to rescue as many people as possible. Hundreds of people, including Captain James Elliott, had clung to the tops of submerged trees, either on the flooded bank or on submerged islands. As boats appeared to save them from the trees, many would call out, Here's your mule! a reference to a Confederate wartime song. Private Joseph Norton recalled being stuck completely naked in a tree. Many passengers had shed their clothing to float better, though it left them much colder in the frigid waters. He was harassed mercilessly by gnats and mosquitoes until he was rescued. Franklin Barden, a former Confederate cavalryman, donned his gray coat and went to the rescue with his canoe, taking survivors back to his cabin, including Jenny Perry. It was a much cozier experience than the last time the soldiers had enjoyed Confederate hospitality. Many others floated much farther downstream. Private George Safford had been joined on board the Sultana by his father, James Safford, a member of the Sanitary Commission who had brought supplies to the soldiers. They had been separated in the disaster, and George, picked up by a boat, had feared his father was lost. The elder Safford, however, had floated 12 miles downstream, where he was rescued by a group of recently liberated African Americans, as was the scrawny Private McIntosh. Their reunion a few days later was a happy one, but for many others there was no such happy reunion. Despite the efforts of numerous volunteers to save as many people as possible, most passengers perished and most bodies were never recovered. Those that were were often unrecognizable. Fortunately, having been under military occupation, Memphis was well outfitted with hospitals and the survivors were afforded the best care possible, though some, such as Engineer Clemens, died shortly after rescue. Deaths from complications would persist for months, and many victims never recovered psychologically. Suicide befell several, including a Tennessee father who'd lost both his boys on the Sultana. In total, just under 1,200 people lost their lives in the worst maritime disaster in American history, just as the Civil War was reaching its conclusion. Almost as shocked as the victims themselves were their families and loved ones who had awaited their return so eagerly. Naturally, people demanded answers. Why was the Sultana carrying so many people? How had the explosion occurred? Some had posited Confederate sabotage, though experts at the time and since have dismissed that theory. Three military investigations were launched, which eventually combined into one investigation. They began interviews with survivors and military personnel immediately, which is where many first-hand accounts of the tragedy come from. As to why the boilers exploded, it seems most likely that the boilers had been used with too little water repeatedly. The iron used at the time was later discovered to be brittle and insufficient, though it was all that was available to engineers of the 1860s. The top-heavy listing likely played a role, too. 
After a few more tubular boiler explosions in the following year, tubular boilers were pulled from most steamboats and factories until stronger materials made them safer in the coming decades. As for why such an unjustifiable number of soldiers were crammed onto the Sultana, the investigation posited highly unsatisfactory answers. One of the men most responsible, Captain Mason, was dead. Because of an insurance claim window of 30 days, the other owners of the boat who had not perished never paid anyone a dime. Of the four army officers at Vicksburg, it was the two least responsible for the crowding who received the most blame. The army was not particularly interested in exposing an atmosphere of corruption and bribery and preferred to focus on individual errors. While we know today that Captain Reuben Hatch was the most interested in packing the steamer after Captain Mason and that he likely received a bribe to accomplish it, he kept that deal secret from investigators. In the weeks following the disaster, Hatch had actually been fired as scheduled and sent for dismissal in Missouri. He saw fit to take quartermaster funds with him on the steamboat journey to allegedly turn in upon dismissal, but the safe was robbed during the journey, leaving Hatch responsible for the disappearance of about $14,000. Hatch was held legally responsible and used the pending trial to ignore later subpoenas regarding the Sultana. He would walk free, but die years later as a poor alcoholic. Captain George Williams, who had been the actual man to insist all passengers remained on the Sultana, albeit because of misinformation, evaded scrutiny by insisting that Captain Frederick Speed was still in charge of the loading process. He carried on in the Army as part of the Freedmen's Bureau until a hernia drove him into retirement. Captain William Kearns, the only man to insist everyone he, to everyone he could that something be done about the overcrowding, was found partially culpable by the investigators because he had learned that the Sultana was undergoing boiler repairs and did not mention it. Never mind that the boiler repair was not the cause of the explosion. His quartermaster department was also found censurable for not claiming its rights from Captains Williams and Speed, though Kearns had tried to get Captain Hatch to do so. He returned to Minnesota to start a family and become a traveling salesman. Captain Speed received the worst treatment. The investigators zeroed in on him as their scapegoat, charging that it was his mishandling of the loading and his taking charge from Captain Hatch that made him chiefly responsible. Despite his frequent requests for time to tally the troops and attempt to divide the men before being stopped by Williams, Speed was the only man to be court-martialed. His trial dragged on for nearly 200 days as Captain Hatch ignored three subpoenas. Despite a well-argued case, the tribunal edited the charges and found him guilty anyway. Fortunately, the final review was left to the War Department in Washington, D.C. Their review found Speed not guilty and instead cast blame on Hatch, though the issue was never pursued. Badly treated, Speed remained in Mississippi, as did many northern officers after the war, and became a prosperous businessman and landowner. But what of the survivors themselves? They still had to be mustered out of the army, and many were cruelly put on board another steamboat, a harrowing experience for them all. Some simply refused and walked all the way to Ohio, or took French leave, as they called it, which meant going AWOL. Charitable donations flowed into Memphis and assisted many survivors in the first weeks. 
but many of them were left with long-term disabilities, both physical and psychological. For civilian survivors, like Ann Annis, there was no option but to rely on the kindness of family and neighbors. Because Lieutenant Harvey Annis had retired literally a few weeks before boarding the Sultana, she was technically disqualified from a widow's pension. For the soldiers, or the widows of soldiers who perished, there was a theoretical possibility of a pension, which was paid to disabled soldiers or the widow of soldiers who died in the line of duty. But rules for pension qualification made it difficult if the disability was not inflicted on the battlefield. Specific witnesses were often unavailable, and many veterans were only made aware of their pension qualification long after the relevant documentation was lost. As such, they formed survivors groups that met annually in the following decades, with attendance peaking just after 1900. These groups worked to help keep the memory of the disaster alive and to assist survivors and the families of victims in their hardships. Perhaps most importantly, it gave the survivors space to share difficult memories with the only people who could understand. One of the survivors, Chester D. Berry, compiled their memories and accounts in the earliest major work on the topic, Loss of the Sultana, in 1892. But what of our friend Eponidas McIntosh from the beginning? How did it work out for him? McIntosh was nursed back to health and regained his weight and strength. Though he started a family, he found he simply couldn't perform manual work after what he'd been through. Instead, he became a traveling musician and, possibly, a revival preacher. He played the guitar and regaled crowds with original stories of his times in the war, Andersonville, and the Sultana. He also had an inventive side, sometimes claiming to have been Lincoln's office boy in Springfield before the war. At each of his shows, he would sell postcards of himself. One card carried an image of his current self, healthy, bedecked in medals, and armed with a guitar. The other card bore a photo taken of himself upon his release from Andersonville. Assisted by another soldier, he literally looks like a gaunt skeleton with a ragged beard, with hardly any clothing on his body. Help an old vet, it said. Macintosh had seen the elephant and lived to sing the tale. Though for the rest of his life he was poor, Macintosh had his family, and he told his story to the age of 83. His story, as for so many of the men and women who went through one of the worst episodes in American history, reminds us of the darkest horrors of human existence, while also standing as a testament to the heights of tenacity and grit. For these reasons, I hope that we shall always remember the Sultana. Until next time, thanks for listening.